When I got elected as part of the Tea Party movement, people cared about limited government, they cared about fiscal conservatism, making sure that our government wasn't spending too much. Uh, under the current administration, spending has skyrocketed. For a party that associates itself with Christianity, to suggest that God would condone putting children in cages has lost all claim to ever use religious language again. We're going to have a great 4th of July in Washington, D.C. It'll be like no other. We're going to have planes going overhead, the best fighter jets in the world, and other planes, too. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I don't know about you, but I'm still in the afterglow of the Democratic primary debates, which showcased 20 sane, intelligent, cognitively intact, reading at grade level people who are normal, talking about normal things and not like crop circles, Sasquatch, Carney, Tucker Carlson as some kind of genius on geopolitics. Or, yeah, or not saying, sure, we take an offer from the Kremlin to win an election, or they're very fine people on both sides. <sighs> it was such a relief. And you know what? There were fascinating issues that I wasn't steeped in that came up in those debates. The legacy of busing didn't seem to me like arcana. It seemed to touch on exactly how activist the government should be in promoting racial justice. And this is something with implications for a range of urgent issues now. It stood out because many of the record number of debate viewers this time came away thinking Kamala Harris, who brought up that issue, won. And then there was Julian Castro's very specific proposal, not that we wring our hands over Trump torture camps, although we're going to do that too, but that we repeal Section 1325 of the immigration bill that makes illegal entry into the U.S. a crime. He wants to make it a civil offense. Beto O'Rourke, by contrast, has said that repealing 1325 would let in human traffickers. Castro has argued that human trafficking is amply covered in other sections of the bill. This is a normal conversation between two people, rational people who disagree. And that was just the beginning. The suggestion, and I refuse to attribute this suggestion because he's really not my candidate, but the suggestion the three richest people in the U.S., that's Bezos, Gates, and Warren Buffett, have more wealth than half of all Americans combined was really a blow to the head. And then there were the cases vociferously made by other candidates for the urgency of climate issues, reproductive justice, and a realignment with NATO and against dictators. But while I was writing in the LA Times glowily and naively about the debates, it seems others were saying with bigger platforms than mine that the Democratic Party is a shit show. And everyone's moving, quote, too far left, and Kamala Harris is not insightful, but terrifying. Um, okay. We wouldn't know a good thing when it hit us in the face. I have the ideal guest today to set me straight and talk about the parties, which I see just to outline it as normal people on the one hand and Trumpist and Trump enablers on the other. And frankly, I think if you like Biden because he can, quote, beat Trump by not scaring away those dainty people who flinch at the idea of racial justice, you're basically voting for a pal for Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, Trump's enablers. You're not wanting to reckon with the deeper, idea-free, rape-enabling, racist kleptocrat problem at the heart of the Republican Party. You're just trying to take Trump out and hope business can get back to usual with Jim Jordan ranting, McConnell obstructionism, and bigoted judges. 
Anyway, my guest today is Kevin Cruz. He's a professor of history at Princeton and the author of, and I'm going to just list all these, Fault Lines, which is a history of the United States since 74, One Nation Under God, about corporate America and Christian America, White Flight, Fog of War about the Second World War and the Civil Rights Movement, The Spaces of the Modern City, and A New Suburban History. I name all these books to say that Kevin Cruz knows what he's talking about. I'll be back with Kevin Cruz in just a minute, but first, the tweets. Biggest 4th of July in D.C. Salute to America. The Pentagon and our great military leaders are thrilled to be doing this and showing to the American people, among other things, the strongest and most advanced military anywhere in the world, incredible flyovers, and biggest ever fireworks. People are fleeing New York like never before. If they own a business, they're twice as likely to flee. And if they are a victim of harassment by the AG of the state, like what they're doing to our great NRA, which I think will move quickly to Texas, where they are loved. Texas will defend them and indemnify them against political harassment by New York State and Governor Cuomo. So many people are leaving New York for Texas and Florida that it is totally under siege. First, New York taxes you too high. Then they sue you just to complete the job. As most people are aware, according to the polls, I won every debate, including the three with crooked Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that in the first debate they modulated the sound on me and got caught. This crew looks somewhat easier than crooked, but you never know. I'm excited to announce that Mercedes Schlapp will soon be joining our campaign. She feels so strongly about our country and its future. We are setting records in so many ways, and we will keep it going. Mercedes has done a fantastic job within the administration, and I'm so thankful. Joining me online is Kevin Cruz. He's a professor of history at Princeton University. Welcome to Trumpcast, Dr. Cruz. Happy to be here. You know why I'm calling you doctor. I know it's uncool to call PhDs doctors, and I'm one myself, and I know we would never insist on it. At the same time, I am buying Tom Nichols' argument that expertise is dead and that what you've spent, you know, the last few decades of your life doing, namely history with primary sources and book writing is as nothing compared to just bloviation by the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world. So anyway, I'm going to call you Herr Doctor just to give you your propers. You have also, as someone with accomplishments as a historian, spent a remarkable amount of time patiently teaching the interwebs about the history of conservatives in America and other important and relevant points about American history. How do you how do you keep up that patience? You're like a dad that never stops playing cat, doesn't get tired of the fact that we keep missing the ball. I mean, I, I am a dad, so so maybe I, that's that's part of the approach here, although my, my children aren't, aren't quite as uh, rude to me as some of the people online. Yep. I'm also, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a teacher, so uh, this is in my bones. This is what I uh, what I do. 
I think there's going to be a time when we get our news through our micro somethings in our hair conditioners or our shampoo or whatever the next nanotechnology is. We're going to look back and say, oh, remember that beautiful sort of gentlemanly collegial time where we set out well-reasoned threads on Twitter. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm just like the partisan yeah. review was never this richly informative and in some cases erudite. When was the first time you just thought, all right, I'm going to take the mic and do a Twitter thread? So I started Twitter in early, what, 2015. And at first my tweets were just kind of like, you know, on this date in history, this happened, uh -huh. which is fine, but you don't really need a historian for that. Like high school teacher kind of things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even, even you know, it was, it was almost like, you know, history, the history.com website or something. Yes. In a lot of ways, what I'm doing is very reactive. I didn't get on Twitter to kind of give these weekly lessons about the Southern strategy or Barry Goldwater. But uh, as folks uh, like the Susan Williamson have tried to rewrite this history. That's what we do. I, I get the red pen out and I correct the mistakes. Yeah. It's a bizarre turn they've made, which I, I really don't quite understand. A decade ago, the Republican Party was very open and forthright about, about its past here, uh, it, much in the same way that the Democrats uh, have been. To, you know, Democrats say, look, we were the party of slavery and segregation. We've come a long way since then. And a decade ago, the Republican Party said exactly that. RNC chair Ken Melman apologized for the Southern strategy. RNC chairman Michael Steele noted that they had a former mm. uh, Southern strategy. And this is something that Republican strategists from Lee Atwater to Kevin Phillips had long been open about. This is not some kind of myth or, or secret. This is something that the Republicans used to reckon with. Mm -hmm. But their case used to be, we used to be like that, but look at us today. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can disagree about this, but, but they, they I think they had a case to make to say, look at us today. We're the party of Marco Rubio and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. We're a young, racially diverse party now. Look at us now. Vote them at now. For some reason, though, in the last five or ten years, there's been a shift from people like uh, D'Souza and Williamson to try to claim that all of that Southern strategy stuff that Republicans used to admit to is nonsense. Uh, and instead, it was it's a liberal myth cooked up by academics who, I don't know, have gone back in time and falsified the historical record or something. And the goal is to say then that the Republican Party has always been on the side of the angels when it comes to race and civil rights, that it was the party of Lincoln back in the 1860s, and it has been good on civil rights ever since. And that's just a story that doesn't hold up. Uh, and, and if Democrats were making that story, that Democrats had always been, you know, Simon Pure on matters of race and civil rights, we'd be objecting too. Uh, but it really is this effort to rewrite history on these, uh, the part of these folks on the right, that's what we're pushing back against. The impulse, just to sort of take this a generation more abstract, the impulse to revise this particular recent history, that it, you know, like I see you sighing and thinking, well, I now need to give an hour of my life and, you know, or at least or two hours to original documents, you know, you have screenshots from newspapers and just always set things back on the right course. I mean, these they're kind of like truthers, like intellectual yeah. light truthers. I just continue to be amazed by their bona fides. Just where they've spent their last years and what they've been doing is just nothing like studying this stuff. But anyway, back to the idea that this kind of truther conspiracy thing, in addition to the content of their argument, the impulse for this argument, this revisionism, seems to me to be consciousness of guilt that the party, modern conservatism, is inflected by, driven by, animated by racism. Yeah. And it really is a, an effort to rewrite that story for themselves 
and for an audience that they hope doesn't know better. And I think a lot of people, um, we've seen this with the, the Blexit campaign and, and other folks like that, uh, that it seems to be targeting African-Americans. I'm not sure African-Americans uh, are going to buy this story about who the real racists are. Mm. I really think increasingly it's an effort to convince uh, whites in the middle who might not know it any better that, oh, you can vote for the party of Trump today, and that's not the party uh, uh, that's that's bad on civil rights. That's the party that was great on civil rights. So that's so, you know, rest assured when they when they talk about you're voting for racist, they're the real racist. But that's where racist just means evil, right? I mean, what's crazy is one of the primary indicators of if you were voting for Trump is if you favored the mass deportation of Mexicans and Muslims. So on the one hand, favoring racist policies is top of your list. On the other hand, you somehow need to be told that you're not, quote, a racist for doing so. Right. That you can vote for racist policies for racist candidates. But you personally, you know, as, as the cliche goes, don't have a racist bone in your body. Right. And that's what I think this effort is, is meant to do. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to racist bone in your body. My pressing question, I quite literally woke up thinking that I have to ask you this. And I maybe in this podcast, we'll get answers to my sort of existential question about America. Do you think the idea that racism is America's, quote, original sin is a useful conceit to historians? I think it is. And it shows up time and time again. There are people who talk about, you know, why do you have to bring racial issues into American history? You can't understand American history unless you understand the role that races played, not just from the founding, but from before in the colonial period. Mm-hmm. Racism really does infuse all this. And that's not a judgment call. That's a fact of the record, right? It's very clearly written into virtually everything that we've done in one way or another. And you can't understand these big issues unless you grapple with that through line. But original sin as a sort of theological concept says that there's something essential in the soil, the American Mm -hmm. language, the American social organization, any drivers of history that or any sort of drivers of national identity, that there might be something essential about it. And I feel like I balk at that idea. And this isn't strictly academic to me, but I'm sure it's something American historians wrestle with all the time. And it goes to the question of, has Trump hijacked the Republican Party or the hearts and minds of Americans? Or has he surfaced our pre-existing depravity, racism, murderousness, misogyny? I would argue it's clearly the latter. Kind of the the shock and horror of some of my friends who are never Trump Republicans that, oh, uh, you know, kind of shocked to, to find all this stuff going on in the Trump administration. It's been a, you know, at least a minor note uh, in in conservative politics uh, for a long time now. I mean, there are there are strains of George Wallace and Richard Nixon all over this. The the anti-immigrant stuff has been a through line. Uh, again, often a minor note, but people like Governor Pete Wilson uh, really played to this in the 1990s. Uh, the hostility over um, over over Muslim immigrants, uh, Muslim Americans, is something that has has really. Uh, uh, been there again in the background to some degree. And so I think Trump really just brought it to the surface. So the idea that Trump is somehow something new or represents a real turn, I think is wrong. I do agree that he really has uh, taken these things that have been in the background to one degree or another and really brought them to the forefront. So do you think that a figure like a former family value conservative like Mike Pence, who would have emphasized character, true love weights, birth control, you know, What's it called when you don't cheat on your wife? Monogamy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, freedom from strippers and and uh, and um, degenerate whatever porn. Do you think that underneath him all along 
was a greedy grifter who had infinite tolerance for a Donald Trump person. I mean, that there was it was just rank hypocrisy among the family values conservatives that at heart they just wanted. I think Rick Wilson had said, you know, they just wanted to be let loose to cage children and stand behind men accused of rape or Jim Jordan's, you know, enable men <laughs> accused of rape or, or sexual abuse. That was all latent in it. Anyway, you can see what I'm suggesting because there is yeah. another yeah. argument that somehow, and you see this in some of the conservatives leaving the Trump administration, you know, even like a Sessions person, which is like, right. this is not really what I had in mind. And to be yeah. told that this is my id, I am a racist, I am whatever I am, but I'm not this. I at least cannot be persuaded that Mike Pence was like this particular kind of monster waiting to get out. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he was a monster waiting to get out. I mean, I, I think what all the flaws that, that Pence had, leave them aside for a second. What I think Pence and the, and the general embrace of the religious right on this is that they had certain long goals in mind. Right. And and those were Supreme Court justices that were going to help turn this, the, the tide on Roe. Mm -hmm. We're going to stem the tide on gay rights. We're going to uphold religious freedom exemptions uh, for, for civil rights laws, things like that. Mm -hmm. That's what they wanted. And whatever it took to get to that point, mm -hmm. they were willing to do. And I think that's really exposed a lot of them as hypocrites. And so you can see uh, you can track the comments made by uh, Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, and Pat Robertson and and Tony Perkins back when Bill Clinton mm. was revealed to have had a consensual sexual affair mm -hmm. and how that was a damning blow to his character. Mm -hmm. And we need moral leaders in office and we can't have a president who has committed an extramarital affair. Uh, and then the way in which they very quickly brushed off uh, Donald Trump's admission that he had committed sexual assault mm -hmm. and the accusations of rape against him uh, to say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. What are you going to do? God has always used imperfect messengers to mm -hmm. to, to achieve His will. Uh, we you know we don't judge the person; we judge the policies. It's a total, complete flip. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, they've done this, and they've been willing to debase themselves mm -hmm. uh, uh, in order to get that policy end right. As long as you can get me Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, as long as you can turn around federal policies on abortion funding and things like that, we'll swallow anything. I think I can get, and I don't know where this lies in the American grain, but I think I can see how you could whip yourself into kind of a dervishy, hysterical frenzy over thinking about the genocide of the unborn the way Pence does and that he is a crusader for, he just pictures heaps of like babies. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I don't know exactly what that feels like. But how is that consistent with, an American agenda since the founding or what it, why would that become the hill you would die on that you would like align yourself with Donald Trump with all the unsavory things that that requires, all the abasement, all the um, forfeiture of dignity and, you know, first line of your obituary and your Bill Barr, your Sessions, your Rex Tillerson, your everyone who's left the cabinet saying like that was hell on earth and he's an idiot because of Roe. Like, right. that doesn't go with America's original sin as racism. That goes with, I don't know. You see, I'm teeing up the idea that I think there's a hijack here. 
Well, I think you can argue that you know, America's original sin is is racism without arguing that it's its only sin or it's only mm. a, a, mm. a big issue. And so that's that's a major through line in history, but it's it's not the only one. Right. From the perspective of, of, of Pence and folks in the religious right, yeah. again, if, I think you described it well. If you truly believe that abortion is the, is, a, is like the Holocaust, is the mass yeah. murder of millions, if that's how you see it, then you're willing to do anything. To yeah. stop it, to make any kind of compromise to, to stop that. I think if we see it from that perspective, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Then what's baffling are the people who have debased themselves. And uh, and again, you mentioned Rick Wilson. He's got that mantra of everything Trump touches dies. Yeah. These people who have who aren't uh, you know prominent leaders in the religious right and who aren't driven by this issue, but have been willing to basically destroy themselves in service to this administration for what tax cuts or you know, a deregulation yeah. of, uh, of a certain industry, um, uh, the tariffs, uh, that really seems bizarre. Um, yes. that the, these people who've, who've kind of set themselves on fire yeah. in the service of something that isn't stopping the Holocaust, but is instead, you know, they're going to make maybe a, a couple billions. Yeah. One of the things that is especially interesting and sort of in some ways unassimilable about American racism is that I've brought this up on the show before, but you know Albert O. Hirschman's short book, The Passions and the Interests? Do you know yeah. that book at all? Yeah. So, right. So, racism is against our interest. You know, he makes, he says this 18th century argument, better a man tyrannize over his wallet than over someone else. So, Americans are just supposed to be greedy, hot for money, right? And yet, setting that all aside for racism or for this, like, phantom genocide or to, like, block Mexicans at the border where you live nowhere near the border and voting seemingly against your interests because of these phantoms and ghosts and paper tigers and like disinformation and fragments of, you know, CNN got to Paul Manafort's house before he was arrested. And I'm going to go down that spiral or it might be crisis actors in Parkland. Like these are passions, completely irrational passions overriding people's interests. That's American politics, though. I mean, you know, and 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 left or right, I think people are are driven to extremes based on on what they think is not just good for themselves, but good for the country. And so, what I find fascinating in these, um, uh, there have been, I think, just one, maybe two journalists have gone out and interviewed um, Trump voters at diners in Ohio. Mm. Maybe three, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but in that in that handful of studies, what always amazes me, hard hitting, uh, impresses me at some level. Are the people who who say yes, I am suffering more economically because of Trump's policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these farm tariffs have crippled me. These other things have done that, but I'm willing to do that for the greater good. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a sense that oh. they are sacrificing, and it, it calls to mind, you know, rationing during the Second World War or things like that. What people did suffer them their own economic needs were sublimated, and they suffered in order for what they thought was the greater good. They mm-hmm. really do believe. Trump is making America great again. They, re- I think that's a, that's a, for a lot of them that is a sincere belief. It's not just a catchphrase. It's not just something they do to. I mean, some of them do it, you know, to to own the libs, to you know, cry harder lib. Yes. There's a certain mantra of that. But I do think there are some out there who really do think that Trump has the country's best interests at heart. That mm-hmm. he's actually acting selflessly and is actually putting uh, the needs of the country first, and they're going to do the same too. So it's sort of this Churchillian thing of like, even if England is like starving and groveling, which I don't for a minute think it will be, we will never yeah. surrender. And that there's something very rousing about that. That's interesting because I hadn't heard that particular description of sacrifice. And that would fit with some of the family values, conservatives thinking like, 
life's hard and it's a slog and like, but you keep your head down and you do it because, you know, the devil's always nipping at you or whatever and you have to fight them off. That makes sense. Okay, now tell me that libertarians, you know, Justin Amash obviously has distinguished himself as being solidly anti-Trump pro-impeachment, but uh, a lot of the others in the Freedom Caucus and libertarians elsewhere have sort of thrown in enough with this brutal border policing and other desecrations of the Constitution and of civil liberties that I never would have thought, you know, I never would have thought that a Rand Paul would even stand next to Donald Trump. Right. And what are they in it for? I have no idea. Uh, it's bewildering. And I th- one of the things about the Trump administration, the Trump presidency, has it really has clarified, whether you agree with them or not, but it's really clarified who on the right, who in libertarian circles, who among social conservatives, who among any of the different varieties of modern conservatism that are out there. And we got to remember, it's 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 not a single thing. It's There are different camps. But it's shown in each of those camps who really believed what they were saying before and yes. who was just going through the motions yes. for political ends, right? And so Justin Amash, again, I would disagree with him on a lot of policy issues. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt he actually believes what he believes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There are religious conservatives on whom I would disagree on abortion policy, I'm, I'm sure. But I have no doubt now that some of them truly believe it and aren't just going through the motions for political ends, right? Mm-hmm. So it really has separated um, uh, 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 the, the people of conviction and the people of convenience. Uh, and I think that is something that has really been clarified. So I don't know why someone like Rand Paul, who seemed like someone who would have stood up uh, to Trump, mm-hmm. uh, has, has clearly buckled. I don't know why so many... Um, of self-proclaimed constitutional conservatives yes. like Ted Cruz are now carrying water for this administration. It's just the personal indignity, the intellectual dishonesty, the giving the lie to everything you've done before that. I mean, I thought that those were things men didn't like to do. <laughs> you know? Right. And right. I, I mean, I especially, it just seems like emasculation, like if they felt feared being condescend if if this particular knot of Trumpites, not just the Johnny Come Latelys, you know, the the Rand Pauls or whoever will who will put up with it, Mike Pence's, but I mean the hardcore Trumpites loathe condescension by, you know, a kind of Hillary Clinton figure and the kind of mind control of PC liberal thinking, then why would they submit so disgracefully to these control measures of the president, I just continue to be baffled by it. Like just the spectacle. I'm baffled too. All I can say as a historian is that, um, you know, uh, uh, the record will be laid out. We'll be able in the future that people are going to compare and contrast what they're doing now with what they did under Obama. Uh, And more and more, the the reasons for that kind of uh, uh, abrupt about face uh, will, will probably come to light. So I don't think in the long term, uh, I think the people like Justin Amash who are sticking by their principles are going to look pretty good. And the people who have uh, clearly sold themselves out aren't going to fare that well. I don't know if you've noticed this, but after 2016, immediately after the election, it felt as though everyone around me had said they had called it. It was like the people that wouldn't admit to voting for Nixon that said, right. well, you know, this is the way it goes because Americans have always been racist or the South is never going to hmm, or Hillary wasn't sexy enough or wasn't in Wisconsin enough. And, you know, everyone was like an awesome election scientist. And I just was completely bewildered for two reasons. First, I, had, of course, didn't know the extent of the the cheating and the Russian attack. 
But I also, I, and maybe I'm naive, but I thought the conservative movement was more coherent. I really did. Like, when you say there are principled constitutional conservatives and we can separate them from the opportunists and there are principled family values types or, or religious right, I just, there's so few of them. Yeah. And I really, like, there was a time when Trump and Hillary were talking about reproductive rights. And I cringe at these moments in in debates because there's so much emotionalism on the pro-life side. My grandfather is an outspoken opponent of abortion, pre-Row. I grew up with the idea that, like, they had the Dickensian sad story of babies in heaps. And we had, we pro-choicers had, you know, more elaborate ideas about physical autonomy and women's rights and not controlling it. But we couldn't, we never had a dead baby, you know? Right. And, you know, I was like, oh, God, here comes the moment where, you know, Hillary Clinton and Trump are going to show down over this. And they're going to get all the Mitt Romney-style points of the genocide of the unborn. I was like, we always lose this one in the moment, you know? And then Mm -hmm. Trump stumbles through something about infanticide or like ripping babies out of wombs. Like, he doesn't seem to know what an abortion is much less have at hand any of the normal, heartfelt stuff. And he still seemed to close the case for voters that, I mean, there's every indication that he's, you know, been plenty pro-choice in the past and that, you know, he's had all kinds of affairs and suggestions that he might have actually been the father of the baby that Elliot Brody had aborted or whatever. And um, not that it's a baby, but the pregnancy that he collaborated in terminating. And did anyone buy for a second? I mean, he he just like wrecked what I thought was like a neat little narrative around abortion and made me think that that argument maybe never made any sense. I I think in this way, I I mean, Trump's answer on that ultimately didn't matter. For people on the religious right, again, as soon as in that Trump Tower meeting in what June or July of 2016, where he brought together all those leaders of the religious right organizations and said, I have in my hand here a list of conservative judges that I will nominate to the Supreme Court. And again, there was a we we forget the Merrick Garland uh, blockade (laughs) that that Mitch McConnell did. But that wasn't a hypothetical. It was the next president's going to at least point one justice, probably two, three, four. Right. So they knew what was on the table. And it, once he committed to that, it didn't matter what he did. Again, he talked about, hey, he could have you know, shot somebody on Fifth Avenue. He could have handled an abortion procedure himself on Fifth Avenue. And I think they probably <laughs> would have forgiven him for that. Yeah. Because the end, they thought, justified uh, the means. And do you think McConnell, like when he's he's realizing the sacrifices of his reputation that he's making, do you think he really is animated by, in particular, stopping the genocide of the unborn or, like, what is this holy war in his head? I just want there to be some ideological coherence to Trumpism. Well, with McConnell, I, I think it's it's partially that, but that's never been his biggest issue. I think he really is all about the tax cuts and, the, and deregulation, and he really wants to kind of complete uh, the slashing of uh, of the uh, of the new, of the New Deal state and it's mm-hmm. and it's you know it's it's heirs and the Great Society and and under Obama with Obamacare that's what he wants and that's what uh, uh, Trump got him and again he got right. judges um, not just judges who would you know vote for Roe v Wade but a lot of federal judges who would vote their way on uh, we've seen you know, on issues like you know gerrymandering recently 
but also on uh, on, on on government powers. So mm-hmm. I think that's what McConnell wanted. And again, willing to do anything. I don't think McConnell cares about his legacy. I don't think McConnell mm-hmm. cares how he's going to be thought of in uh, 10 or 20 years. If he does care, he's doing it incredibly wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I've got to assume he just doesn't care. And he's really in it uh, for this moment uh, to smash and grab as much as he can. Yeah. And, and also for the sort of proxy or abstract sort of almost like athletic competition. Like, I really do think of him as like blocking and tackling, like physically, like I'm on a team and they cannot score any goals. And it's, yeah. you know, operation block yeah. is, you know, and that he may have lost sight of. And, you know, we know that uh, that his his wife and he may be looting in their own way. And but that whatever were the pointed ends of the party have just ter- have entirely turned into we're just cheering for Man United. Like, it, yeah. it's just like there might be some scrappy thing that we're, we've associated with the way you know, sports fans will will tack on, you know, we're doing it for, you know, the coach's son who is sick or whatever. Like you try to have some noble thing right, right. Um, that makes you think God's on your side. But by now, it just seems like scraps. Yeah, it's all about the win. That's that's all they that's all he cares about. Yeah. OK. And then what about the people who have walked away from it? Because it's easy to talk about the toadies, but what about future conservatism can we tell by the defectors like Max Boot and other intellectuals, you know, the never Trumpers, those critics of Trump, and then also the people who've just poured out of his administration and look like battered and bruised. I mean, they probably don't have second and third acts in them. They look so sapped. Like, is Gary Cohen going to make a run at the Fed chair again? Probably not. Like, I just feel like they're going to lick their wounds and certainly Barr will when he's done with this. But is it possible that they'll remake a Republican party? I mean, some of the never Trumpers are not abandoning the party. David Frum. Right. Some of them have registered as Democrats. Um, James Comey, you know. Yeah, it's again, I'm an historian, my training's in hindsight. um, So it's tough to make predictions. But I think if we look at the past, you can see for their, you know, the the Republican Party, uh, its future is largely, I think, going to be because it's come so wedded to Trump. It's going to depend on what happens with Trump now. Yeah. If Trump goes down, uh, is either impeached and removed from office or decides to resign or is, you know, resoundingly defeated in 2020. If there's a, a bad end to that story, I think you're going to find a lot of the people who tried to wed themselves to Trump very quickly trying to undo that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's going to be a, a struggle on the right between those who were correct about Trump all along and held out uh, and will clearly have the upper hand and those who sold out. Um, yep. uh, and so there's going to be a reckoning there. Uh, and, and whether or not the party reinvents itself after that moment uh, is going to depend on uh, on how that struggle plays out. But if Trump hangs on, uh, even if he is, you know, uh, if he if he wins reelection uh, or if he, uh, you know, uh, somehow um, manages a way to, to exit with with some dignity here, uh, I think the party has been set on a new course here because, uh, again, those never Trumpers uh, have been driven out or have driven themselves out. Uh, and what's been left behind is a party that is increasingly committed not just to Trump, but to the principles or lack of principles uh, he embodies. Yeah. Uh, and what that's done is it's set up a base, which is really, uh, in the short term at least, is going to be wedded to this solely because the base is increasingly older, whiter, more male, uh, and, and really much more conservative. Now, 
long term, you don't have to break out the actuarial tables to know that long term, that's not a solution uh, as younger voters are running away from the Republican Party like never before. Uh, but in the short term, the party really will be, I think, uh, uh, committed to, uh, uh, to to Trumpism. Uh, it may be a death spiral, but I think, you know, uh, for the next decade or so, you're going to see the the kind of the remnants of this carry out. I don't know if you've seen, by the way, Do the Right Thing, which is celebrating its 30th um, oh, yeah. anniversary, if you've seen it recently, because it's like all over the art theaters here for its anniversary. And I kind of want to try this out on you. First of all, I know there's a canon of thinking that Spike Lee doesn't handle gender well, and I'm not as familiar with that as maybe I should be. But that movie is still the masterpiece that it was. I mean, it, there's there's some perfection in that movie. And yeah. it, you know, it goes, it mentions climate change, Donald Trump, you know, a perfect American movie and happens in the course of this one day. It's very interesting against a backdrop of police brutality and obviously a, a, the police kill a kid um, at the end of it. But there's something that suggests Trump times to me. And obviously, we're always looking for analogies. But I don't know if you remember, but the day is almost perfect by the end of the day. Like Sal, the pizzeria owner, says, this was a great day. Yeah. And like everything has been harmony, you know, with this DJ and kind of in charge. Harmony that occasionally tilts into kind of discord. But there's not much more than like, you know, a little friction here and there and mostly harmony. And then it's harmonious till it isn't. He's trying to close the pizzeria. And then he decides he's feeling so generous and expansive. He's had such a great day. There's been all this racial harmony. Things that looked like they were going to go wrong didn't. You know, it's like the end of the Obama administration, like just had a great time here. (laughs) And he decides to let in for more people that want pizza. And as he's serving them and they're very like, oh, we're all living together in this great pluralist world, bugging out and his friends come in and, you know, he ends up crashing Radio Raheem's radio, you know, bashing it with a baseball bat. And then the whole place goes up in flames. A window is broken, quite literally, like Rudy Giuliani's broken windows. And it all falls apart. And what I guess I wonder is, if that movie works as a good allegory, if you agree it does, could that part have been averted? Was it all along the harmony that we perceived, the the increasing Mm. racial social harmony that we thought was afoot and that, you know, the majority of voters voted for in the form of Hillary? Was it just undone by an almost random kind of like World War One riot conflagration where all these people lost their minds? Like they just they weren't saying the things they used to say. Suddenly you have the religious right and libertarians like saying the exact opposite of the thing they said the other day. Even people that you didn't really think were like money people. McConnell wants to smash and grab and get all the money he wants. And it looks like a riot to me. It doesn't look like. Well, we knew the natural extension of McCain's campaign and Romney's campaign and the conservatism that preceded Trump. It was all leading to Trump. It looks like something, some set of accidents happened. We had Andreas Dutoy on, who's a a historian of South Africa and an activist in South Africa, who said when he saw the resignation of Justice Kennedy, he said that reminded him of the kind of weird accident that created apartheid. Yeah. Like just things, a bunch of things happen. You think things are going fine. Then you, you know, get, you don't notice yeah. that people have been listening to Alex Jones and all of a sudden the place is on fire. 
But I think that's that's the thing is that is that it was that we hadn't noticed, and so I don't think had you know had had Hillary Clinton won the election, I don't necessarily think things would have been much better. I think what you would have had, you wouldn't have. Uh, one of the silver linings of Trump is that uh, a lot of people who had for decades uh, been on autopilot in terms of their involvement with democracy and their involvement with politics uh, suddenly woke up. Yeah. And so you know uh, uh, we would have probably still had the Me Too movement, but we wouldn't have the Women's March. Uh, what we saw with Parkland and the March for Our Lives, what we saw with uh, the, the the real takeoff of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of movements have really shown a new injection uh, of a real grassroots democracy and yep. grassroots protest. Uh, and that's, I think, the silver lining. I don't think you get that with Hillary Clinton yeah. in office. I think you would you would have had folks on the left still kind of uh, grumbling in autopilot. They would have been complaining about her and what a sellout she was and how she was a moderate. Uh, and instead, you would have had People like Trump on the outside, you know, probably on Fox News or maybe a new Trump TV, constantly riling up those people even mm-hmm. more. Uh, the 2018 midterms would have gone not to the Democrats. They would have been kind of a deepening of the Republicans, I bet, uh, in reaction to, to Hillary Clinton. And it would have been, uh, I think, even worse, uh, you know, if we can if we can game that out. But all that all that stuff, all that ugliness was was under the surface. So to go back to do the right thing, you know, mm-hmm. if he doesn't if he closes up the pizzeria before those last four folks come in, that doesn't mean the problems are outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, bugging out is going to come back tomorrow, right? You know, the riot happens then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to erupt a, a, at one point or another. So history is in some ways uh, you know, a set of contingencies that determines the ultimate outcome. But the underlying forces are there, and they, I think they come out one way or the other. My guest has been Kevin Cruz. He's a professor of history at Princeton. Thank you so much for being here, Kevin. Hey, my pleasure. That's our show for today. What'd you think? Find us on Twitter and let's talk. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there? Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member. Today's the day. Plus, members get all of Slate's podcasts ad free for only $35 for the first year. That is, I'm amortizing it. Slotties, no hay pennies, no hay guineas a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was not hay produced, but fully produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. He's the best of the impersonators, let's face it. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. And did you know that Johnny D. also stars as Trump in a full-on movie? Please take a look. It's awesome. Fake news. A Trump story on Amazon Prime. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. This 4th of July, we're going to have a fantastic time. But it isn't just about the mattress sales and the car sales and the burgers and the hot dogs. It's about me. The greatest president in the history of presidents other than the late great Abe Lincoln. This 4th of July will be a show of strength. We will have tanks, fighter jets, aircraft carriers, men parachuting, lasers, and all kinds of smoke machines. It'll be like a battleground here in D.C. We have been able to get an incredible lineup of entertainment, including Three Doors Down and a tribute band to Three Doors Down. Everyone's complaining that 
Ivanka was with me at the G20. They're saying it's nepotism. It's not right. It's all these things, you know. But you know, when no one ever complained when God sent Jesus to be the Savior, and He could have chosen anybody. But that's nepotism, and no one complains about that. 